It's our privilege to have with us today Ralph Keel. I invite Ralph to come up. He's going to talk about his ministry with FCA. Thank you, Randy. It is good to see a lot of faces out there that I've known for years. And um, you know me as Ralph Keel. Uh, with FCA, they know me as Coach Keel. And it's just easy to remember. And I just wanted to just to share a few moments with you. Uh, I've come to adore your church. It brings back a lot of old memories to me coming in here. And in fact, some of you might remember that I, I preached here two years ago. And... Uh, but you don't remember that, and that's okay. And that's probably, and that's probably a good thing. So, <laughs> um, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Uh, many of you were involved with that growing up. Uh, my involvement when I was in Huntsville High School, uh, I signed up for FCA. I got my picture taken. I put it underneath my picture in my annual, and that was about the extent of it. Uh, but that was 1967. <coughs> About seven years ago, a good friend of mine asked me if I would come on board with the, uh, the, the board and be their chaplain with FCA, which I'd love to do. I love sports. I used to coach baseball at Grissom High School, one of the assistants. Loved to be around coach sport, sports. So it was a natural fit. So I came aboard as a board member just to be the chaplain. Uh, Ken Burnett who was the year director, uh, just a visionary, very, very passionate. And uh, he came in uh, one day and he said, uh, once you retire, would you consider joining FCA working with coaches? Well, we had been in ministry for 30 years and we've been praying, Lord, what do you want us to do with the last 10, 15 years of our ministry life? And honestly, before he left, um, retirement had been pushed up to one year. In fact, we began the process, and uh, I was on, uh, I was a, a pastor in Huntsville at the time, been with that church for 18 years, and uh, it was, it was just almost a moment, uh, uh, like an epiphany, and my wife and I prayed about it. We went to UAH to their FCA huddle, that's what we call them, huddles, and that was the defining moment. We knew that the Lord was lead, leading us to go full-time with FCA. Uh, and that was five years ago. Uh, real quickly, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athlete, uh, they give out the little cards here. Our vision is to see the world impacted for Jesus Christ through the influence of coaches and athletes. That's, let me give you a snapshot of what we try to do. Uh, here's some words. High energy, passion, relationships, evangelism. Interracial, influence, encouragement, Christology, which means we talk about Jesus. Application, uh, we travel a lot. We cover five counties, and, and, but I might be at Spartman one day and then Gunnersville High School the next day. A lot of travel, but we actually go to where the kids and the coaches are. We go to their territory, um, and we use text a lot. You know, at my age... You know, the cell phone is phenomenal, a challenge, but with the texting, uh, I text coaches every day. Uh, here's some, a few C's to better explain what we try to do. Uh, first C is the campus. We have what we call huddles before school. Kids come, uh, bring their friends, they hear about Christ. Uh, we have uh, 70 of those 
and the, we're, we're part of Northeast Alabama FCA. We cover five counties, like I said, and we have 70 huddles that, that every other week on that school campus. We also do what we call a drug-free and abstinence assembly. We'll go into schools every other year. Uh, they have an assembly bringing all the kids. We can't talk about Jesus, but we can talk about principles and morals and invite them to come hear about Jesus that Wednesday night. Uh, I've got good news for you. God is still well, and he's still in the school system. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult. Uh, I think Fellowship of Christian Athletes probably will be the last Christian group to, to leave. Um, it's becoming more difficult for youth pastors to get into the school system because of the separation of church and state. Um, but the reason I say we might be the last is because we have such a strong influence with coaches and principals who were in FCA, and I think they'll drag their feet. Uh, right now, we have a lot of consistency. Uh, again, uh, former coach for 28 years, they see me, there's a rapport there, and so we can come sign in, but we can come in and, and basically walk the halls, meeting coaches and, and kids. Second C is camps, and that's why I wanted to come this morning real quickly and speak about sports camps. We have camps in Albertville, Hampton Cove, this year in Coleman. We actually hired a six-person in charge of our sports camps, ages 7 through 13. And it will be a legitimate Christian sports camp, which means if my son comes, he'll learn about baseball, but also he'll learn about Jesus. Uh, that will be the third week in June. So if you have children 7 to 13, uh, we'd love for them to come. We also have trained 40 interns high school and college kids to be over these huddles uh, when they come to sports camp. Uh, third C is community. We want to partner with churches and small groups, businesses, and serve them. Sports camps, uh, I'll speak to coaches doing rec leagues. Uh, we're here to serve. Fourth C is, is what I do. 80% of my day is with coaches. And what I'll do, uh, I, mentioned, I heard somebody mention K-groups in your Sunday school class today. Basically, it's a small group, like a Konania group. It's a Bible study for coaches before school. Now, they only give me maybe 30 minutes, but that's 30 minutes I can be with them to show and share scripture. What we're finding out is this. This is what Billy Graham said. <clears throat> coaches influence more lives in one year than the average person does in a lifetime. My question is, what kind of influence? What we're trying to do is be part of God's transforming coaches to represent Christ and influence that campus. They say, touch the coach, you touch the campus. And that's what, that's what I do. Uh, with, uh, I travel to 35 different campuses, and they have these studies. It's called Legacy Builders, and it's been a while. I mean, this thing is falling apart. Coaches come together and study the Word of God. The fifth C is church, and me being a pastor, I see the need, these kids and coaches need to be involved in church. That's where they're going to grow. That's where they're going to be discipled. And so what we'd like to do, if you had kids that met Christ in our sports camp, we would write a letter to Randy and say, Dear Pastor Jenkins, uh, Ralph Kiel gave his life to Christ at sports camp and just want to let you know how thankful we are for, for you. And then Randy gets this youth pastor or someone in the youth group to meet with that person and help them to grow. This is a personal thing for me. 
if a person meets Christ, we want to follow them up to help them grow in Christ. They say that 85% of those who profess Christ are not following Christ in two years. So in a group of 100, the statistics say only 15 will be following Christ in two years. And one reason, I think, is because they never really made a credible profession. They got swept up, and they, made, they said the prayer, or they made the right profession, but they, ne- they never knew how to grow. And this is where the old coach comes in. You know, if you're playing baseball for me, I'll give you the baseball and the glove and the bat, and I'll say, I'll see you at practice. And we'll do it over and over and over. Finally, uh, coverage. We cover five counties, 100,000 students. 100,000 students is, is in our, our region. Hundreds and hundreds of coaches. We've got six staff. Uh, five years ago, they had one staff. Kim Burnett is near director. Myself, I work with coaches. Matt Herring from South Carolina, he works with the kids. Uh, Coach Pam Chamless, she left, left a great job at Discovery Middle School, and she works with the women athletes and the women coaches. Gary Surrett left a CPA job to be our administrator. Uh, Jamie Strange, we just hired from Gadsden. He's in charge of all our summer camps, sports camps. And Walt Guest, he's in charge of our middle school. So we're in colleges, the high schools, the middle schools, and elementary schools. The doors are open right now. Right now. Tomorrow, the school might decide otherwise. One last story, then I'll be through. I heard you have a good preacher here. <laughs> Arab High School is part of our area. And before the games, football games, they would always say a prayer over the PA system. And they did that two years ago until someone complained. And they wrote a group in Washington, I mean, uh, Wisconsin. And they sent a letter to the school board in Arab, Alabama. They said, what, are you, what you're doing is illegal. Unless you stop saying prayer in a public arena, we will take you to court. The superintendent said, we don't have the money to fight this. So they stopped saying prayer before the football games. The parents and the players decided to do otherwise. The very next game, I think they played Boaz or another team. This is what happened. Here's Arab. All the parents in the stand stood up and shouted to the other side, Our Father, Boaz's parents stood up and said, Who art in heaven? And they said the Lord's Prayer back and forth. They don't need a PA system. God doesn't need a PA system. God needs those who follow him. And here's what we'd like to do as is, is part of, PG, uh, of FCA, is represent Christ. And you're allowing us to do that. Pass the word. Uh, we've been around a long time. They've been around 60 years with FCA. It ain't going away. We'll continue to serve the Lord. Matthew 5 says this. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let your deeds be shown to men so they may glorify your Father in heaven. Thank you for allowing us to be salt. And thank you for allowing us to be light. God bless you. Thank you, Pastor.
They never clap after my sermons, I won't tell you. <laughs> Uh, FCA may be one of the last vestiges of those allowed in the schools um, uh, to present the things of Christ outside of the believers who permeate uh, the classrooms and who teach there and who coach there. Uh, So we will pray for uh, your continued success right now. So uh, as Robert plays, let's get ready to pray. Lord, Paul wanted nothing more than to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Also, that he would be able to share in his sufferings and become like Christ. We think of all those, Lord, who sacrifice so much that they may share the things of Christ, that they may have the opportunity to demonstrate in their lives and in their words the wonderful mercies of our Savior, his grace, and the call that he places upon our hearts. Today, Lord, we, play, we pray particularly for FCA and for Coach Keel that your mercies would be upon him, upon the rest of the staff. Lord, that you would make them attentive and gentle in the way that they go about things as they work in and around the schools. Lord, that you would pave the way that they might continue this ministry and continue to influence the lives of the athletes that you put in front of them that they might be uh, a clear, their lives and words be a clear declaration of the things of Christ, that, Lord, that you would further that ministry here in this area and open other doors for them, Lord, so that they would need more staff, need more volunteers to be involved in the declaration of the things of Christ. Lord, you lay opportunities before each of us. Some are in our home, some are at work, some with our neighbors, some uh, at a restaurant with uh, perhaps the wait staff that comes and, and we have the opportunity to share the things of Christ with them. We pray that we will be bold in these things and not hesitant, that we would fear no one in this world but fear only our Heavenly Father, that in awe we would stand of your power and your mercy and your grace. So, Lord, today we come before you and we come to worship you We come to pray the things of your word and to sing the things of your word, Lord, to read it and to digest it. So we pray your spirit descend upon us, Lord, that our hearts and minds be filled with the things of Christ on this day and all days. So we come to you in his name, and Lord, we'll share together now the prayer he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So it is our privilege to come before the Lord and worship him. 
and participate in the ministry he calls us to as we give of our tithes and offerings. So I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward at this time.
Lord, we're grateful for the gifts that you bestow upon us, that we might use them for your glory and for the building of your kingdom, for the furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we might be wise in their application and use, and pray, Lord, that your blessing would be upon them, that they would be used in a fashion that we could not even dream or imagine, as you would multiply them in this fantastic way. So we pray that for your blessing, and we pray for your guidance in these things, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated.
right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 21. And I would just remind you, parents, that you need to, after worship, to pick your children up who are going uh, right now. Uh, They won't come down to you. You must go and get them. Unless you don't want them anymore, then just leave them up there, okay? (laughs) And we're grateful for Garrett, and and Garrett's uh, uh, other uh, gift is Celtic music, which has this uh, beat and his, uh, some illegal haggis, what is it, your group? Black Market Haggis. So if you ever see that as advertised and you like Celtic music, that's his group. And I have to say, they're very good. Okay, they're very good. Um, and, and, you know, that music is it's happy music. Okay? Isn't that what Steve Martin said about banjo music years ago? It can't be sad with a banjo. It's like, oh, I won't do his bit. Okay, oh, death and grief and sorrow, and he's playing. It sounds so happy. Okay, that's what Celtic music sounds happy. All right. Uh, let's get back to this. <laughs> Acts 21. Now, it's a long passage, so I, I'm not going to ask you to stand today, but uh, please follow along as we start in Acts chapter 21, and we'll begin in verse 27. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to your word, that we might see plainly and clearly what you are doing in our lives and what you call us to do, no matter what our circumstances are. Might we see from Paul's actions and the actions of believers from the first century how we then are to live today. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 21, beginning in verse 27. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the multitude and lay hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he got to the stairs, it so happened that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people kept following behind, crying out, Away with him. And as Paul was about to be brought in the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Uh, Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus, of Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, 
And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gemael, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison, and also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. And it came about that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And he said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. As they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against that way, against him that way. And when they stretched him out on the thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful to you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do, for this man is a Roman? And the commander came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him, and the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. This is God's inspired word for us today. 
Now, it's a large section, so probably to your relief, we're not going to go verse by verse and, and chew on all that, but there is a concept here that we need to wrestle with, and that is how is it that we can give a positive testimony to the things of Christ, even though the circumstances around us seem to be so dire and so bad. Now, I understand where Paul is, and, and, and we'll look at off and on through all this, but when he comes to his testimony, and when he talks about what has happened in his life, boy, those people are, are really into this. And then all of a sudden, he mentions that dreaded word, Gentile. And the judgment of those who have been listening so attentively to Paul is because he likes the Gentiles. He doesn't even deserve to live anymore. Okay, so off they go. And um, uh, just as an interesting thing, if Paul is taken by the tribune to be examined. And how is he examined? Well, we're going to beat him and examine him. Now, I, I don't know how you examine people, but I don't usually pull out a whip and, and examine them by beating them. Uh, but that's the way they wanted to do it. They were going to beat the truth out of Paul until they found out he was a Roman citizen, and that was a no-no. And we'll see that in a moment. Now, beginning in 21, verse 27, you're really seeing the last free actions of Paul as a minister of the gospel, as an evangelist. From now on, his ministry changes from that as somebody who goes from city to city to declare the things of Christ to a prisoner of Christ. He is a prisoner. Now, that doesn't seem to have any effect on the success of his ministry. Uh, in fact, he writes uh, some of the most important letters to churches while he is a prisoner. And uh, somebody suggested to me that perhaps that was the way, uh, the only way the Lord could get him to write stuff was if he put him in prison and kind of confined him. Uh, then he could write these great letters that he writes. But remember, Paul is never a prisoner of Rome. He is never a prisoner of Rome. Throughout the scripture, he always says he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ, okay? That is why he is in prison, and, and even though his surroundings are, are just like any other prisoner, he is a prisoner of Christ. My bonds in Christ are manifest in all places, He's in, in all the palace, he says in Philippians. Paul writes in Ephesians, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. He never viewed his imprisonment as the actions of men he doesn't say well i'm a prisoner of rome he doesn't say this is man's fault he says this is the working out of god's plan and i am a prisoner of christ this is simply a new step in the ministry that he is called to do and at the end of philippians he writes the saints greet you chiefly that are of caesar's household so the only way that caesar's household was going to hear the things of the gospel was if paul went to rome and then was imprisoned, and usually this is seen as the Praetorian Guard, as the soldiers kind of cycled through who would guard him. I mean, that might be great duty or it might be terrible duty, because you had to sit with Paul chained to him on your shift, so to speak, for eight hours. And if you're chained to Paul, you're going to get the gospel, okay? I mean, it would be, think, 
here you have, as we'll see in a moment as he gives this testimony, one of the great theological minds. He had this great education in Gamaliel, uh, the best of the best. He had all this knowledge of the Old Testament. He had seen Christ face to face. He had spent three years in the Egyptian desert being taught by the Holy Spirit. And now you're chained to this guy. And, and there's no football to talk about. Okay, there, There's no uh, hockey playoffs. There's nothing like that. So what are you going to talk about with Paul? You're going to talk about theology. You're going to talk about Jesus Christ. You're going to talk about how Christ from the very beginning was shown that he must come, he must die and give his life and he would raise, be raised from the dead. Eight hours each day, every day. And so the gospel spreads right into Caesar's household through Paul's ministry in prison to the Praetorian Guard. He says, I may be bound, but the gospel is not bound. Now I suppose that every one of us have faced at times in our lives, the dilemma of how to give a positive testimony in the midst of a negative situation, whether it's in a time of uh, debilitating illness or struggling or trial or whatever it might be, how is it that we can talk about the things that the Lord is doing in our life in such a positive and gracious and, and, and confident way, even though it seems the rest of the world around us is coming down upon us. Now, how do we do this? How do we recognize that the bad situation or circumstance that we are in is really an opportunity to give a testimony to the things of Christ? Well, uh, testimony to the things of Christ. Let's say that that most... Uh, now, we don't do this here, but maybe you grew up in a church where it had Sunday night services, and maybe once a month or once a quarter, it was testimony night, okay? And you had a chance to stand up, and there'd be a lot of singing, there'd be a chance to stand up and give a testimony to the things of Christ and how he was working in your life. Does anybody remember going to those, or anybody, you, you can, oh, okay, there's a couple former Baptist types here, okay? uh, you know, Presbyterians... We think, well, if we do it right Sunday morning, we don't have to do it again, right? We're, we're going to have to do it again. Yeah? Uh, well, so there's this testimony, and, and I've been to some, and, and you stand up and you give, you give a witness or a testimony to what Christ has done in your life, and the whole church is there, and the church is going, yeah, that's great, and you've got the amen corner and the, and the praise the Lord corner, and, and you know, when, when the guy preaches, you've got the help him Jesus corner back here, okay? Uh, so, but... That's a testimony in front of the church, okay? When everybody pretty much is on the same page and everybody is excited and everybody sits there and says, yeah, I know the Lord does that and that is fantastic. Paul's testimony is a little bit different because he is giving a testimony before non-believers. He is giving a testimony to those who hate the things of Christ, who hate even the word Gentile enough that when he says he ministers or takes the gospel to the Gentiles, they want to kill him. So this is the place where a testimony, if we can understand it this way, is the most effective. The church can sit around and, and grow and be confident of the work of Christ in somebody's life as they stand up and declare how the Lord has worked. You go out to the non-believers and give a testimony to the things of Christ in your life. You may face rejection, you may face hatred, but they're the ones who really need to hear how God has worked in your circumstances and how you can declare the things of Christ to them. Now, throughout history, from the very beginning of the Old Testament, uh, it's always been true that those who 
have been willing to give a testimony of the work of God and for Christ face uh, some terrible odds. It really doesn't matter how, what the situation is or even how negative it can be. Last week I mentioned Hugh Latimer and his testimony as he was being burned at the stake in England. Uh, you can go back through uh, the Old Testament. You go to Daniel who wouldn't defile himself by eating the, the food, wouldn't uh, stop praying to the Lord. You've got Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who, uh, you know, face the fiery furnace. Uh, if you come into the New Testament, you've got people like Paul, Peter who the Sanhedrin says, you've got to stop preaching this gospel. And he says, who am I going to obey, man or God? And Peter says, I'm going to obey God and I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. Uh, you've got Stephen who gives this testimony, this great testimony, as they are stoning him. And the stones are raining down upon him, but yet in gentleness and, and a real love for those who are doing that, he seeks their own forgiveness. Okay? And then you've got uh, some things uh, in the post-New Testament times. Uh, into the early church, you've got Ignatius. Now, Ignatius was uh, one of the many individuals who was persecuted under the emperor Trajan. And he... he uh, he was really good at that. So hundreds and probably thousands of believers died under that persecution. And Ignatius, uh, he said, I'm going to preach the gospel. And, and so Trajan got him and he did all kinds of nasty things to him. He, he held out his hands. He made Ignatius hold out his hands and he put fire in his hands. He dipped paper in oil and, and stuck it to him and then lit the paper on fire. And, and then when he was done and, and Ignatius was almost dead, he threw him out into the wild beast and the wild beast tore him to bits. So he writes this letter um, to, to other believers and he's, about his persecution, and, he, and he's, he's kind of paraphrasing Paul here. He says, Let the fire and let the gallows and the wild beasts, the breaking of bones, the pulling asunder of members, the bruising of my whole body, the torments of the devil, and hell itself come upon me so that I may win Jesus Christ. He said, this is just really a part of the life of the believer, and I'm ready to face it. And I'm ready to face it. So, we come here to Paul in the beginning of this section and look at 21, 27. And when the seven days were almost over, these were the days of the purification. Now, we understand... Excuse me. We understand that uh, this was a, a process and Paul was really holding to the Jewish traditions and the Jewish teachings. This goes back into Numbers chapter uh, 19. So this is the seventh day uh, when they received the water of atonement. And this was after a Nazarene vow was taken and they would cut their hair and, and, and kind of the vow was over and then they received the waters of purification. So Paul is in the temple. And some Jews from Asia see him, see him there. Now, ever since the time in Ephesus, when he began to preach in the, the synagogues, there, have been, there has been a group of upset Jews who were following him around and stirring up trouble wherever he would go. Paul would begin to preach the gospel. The Jews from Ephesus would come down, these Asian Jews, and they would say things about him. There would be some revival. There would be some riot. Paul would go out to the next place okay and even back if we go to the um, when Paul gets a dream to go to the Gentiles of Macedonia they are waiting to hear the message of Christ waiting to hear the message of salvation they are pleading that someone would come and tell them the truth and here we have Jews who are killing the messenger because he is preaching the truth so that is the situation that Paul finds him in 
or finds himself in. So when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he has all of these Gentile friends with him because he's been to the other churches. And remember, he was collecting an offering to take back to the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem was kind of in dire straits. Uh, there had been a famine. There had been persecution. All these Jews had come uh, and, 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 uh, at, at Pentecost even and, and those times, and they'd come to Christ, and they had stayed. Now they were facing difficult times. So Paul is out in the Gentile churches collecting an offering to give to the church of Jerusalem. And you think they would be pretty excited to receive this and know that these fellow believers have cared enough to collect money and give it to them. And there's all this whole kind of entourage that comes with uh, Paul as he uh, arrives in Jerusalem. Well, guilt by association. That's what happens to Paul. He's walking down the street with... I'll get... (laughs) Trophimus. He's walking down the street with Trophimus. And some Jews see him and go, well, if he's walking down the street with this guy... Surely he would take him right into the temple and defile the temple, right? I mean, it's it's only natural you see him on the street. He must be in the temple. Now, the problem with that is that Gentiles were not allowed in certain areas of the temple. And and it's, it's interesting that it wouldn't fall, the punishment wouldn't fall upon Paul. The punishment would fall upon Trophimus. So if Paul dragged Trophimus into an area of the temple that he was not allowed to be in, they would have killed Trophimus. Okay, they would have killed him. Uh, any Gentile daring to set foot beyond a certain point in the temple was immediately to be killed. Uh, in fact, they dug up a few years ago, they dug up this, this copper and brass plaque that's, that explained how far Gentiles could go and the punishment that awaited them if they went too far. So it's ironic that Paul is arrested for doing the very opposite of what he is accused of doing. He's accused of defiling the temple when he is in in actuality fulfilling the vows and the teachings of Numbers chapter 19. So they drag Paul out of the temple and a tribune comes down to arrest him. Now the tribune, the chief guy, is listed over in chapter 23 and his name is Claudius Lysias and he's a man of great character because he's a tribune. So a tribune means he's in charge of at least a thousand soldiers. So he gets centurions, he gets soldiers to come, and they all descend because there is this mob scene going on because Paul is, is uh, they think he's defiling the temple. So the tribune comes in and he gets Paul out of the crowd. So let's look at uh, verse 37 of chapter 21. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And the commander was shocked that he spoke Greek. He was, you speak Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? This happened about 54 A.D. Uh, there was an Egyptian who came and basically did what happened. He stirred the pot. He was going to be, he was going to overthrow the Romans and nothing happened there. So he took his little band, whoever survived the the uh, attack by the Romans upon them, took their little band out in the wilderness and they became a band of paid assassins and basically would do the dirty work for anybody who could pay them. Okay? So this is who the, the uh, tribune thinks Paul is. He's just a troublemaker. He's just a troublemaker. Well, and Paul responds, 
He says, no, verse 39, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Sicilia, a city of no insignificance, and I beg you, allow me to speak. Now, I don't know if you've been in this situation, but when you have a large mob of people trying to kill you, uh, usually all you want to do is get away from that mob of people. Paul is not like that. Paul begs to be able to speak to the mob, to speak to these people. He says, permit me to speak unto the people. Well, he says, okay, because I want to know what's going on, basically, the, uh, the, the tribune says. And verse 40, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, probably Aramaic, which was a dialect of, of Hebrew. And so the crowd is shocked that this guy, one, knows Greek, he's spoken to the tribune. Secondly, he can speak to them in their own language, in their own language. When Paul has the attention of the crowd, so Paul goes on in, in, in this long section here in, verse, in chapter 22, gives his cultural, his educational, his religious, and his personal pedigree. And we won't go into that because we've seen it in other places, but Paul is smarter. He comes from the best families. He's been educated by the best people, Gamaliel, who was the best rabbi of the best rabbis. He, he talks about his zealousness. He was the zealous of the zealots. Okay, I mean, he was out there killing the Christians. He was persecuting them. He was fomenting this this uh, attempt to weed out this uh, this thing called the way and, and to stamp it out. And he had been commissioned by the Lord to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul basically is saying to this crowd, I'm just like you. In fact, if you think you're a good Jewish guy, I'm better than you. Okay, I have done everything. And we know how many times Paul has, um, uh, you know, as if, what he has gone through for his faith, his shipwrecks, his beatings, all of those things. And to this crowd, he says, my breeding, my education, everything about me says I am a fantastic Jew. But I've seen Christ. I have seen Christ. And they can't take the fact that he said Christ called him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So they take him out, and they're going to examine him by flogging. As I said, and it was the same type of flog, the same type of flagellum that, that uh, Christ was beat with. All those, um, uh, the, the cat of nine tails, all those things with the bone and the metal stuck in it. And, and they would beat him, and then the individual's flesh literally would come off of his back. Uh, and sometimes they would die because of the beating. Uh, other times that was enough just to be punished in that fashion. And that's how he was to be examined. And then Paul lays this bombshell on the guy. Oh, I'm a Roman citizen. Now, you could not beat a Roman citizen. You could not crucify a Roman citizen, uh, especially one that had not been charged or found guilty of anything. Remember, he's just going to be examined by beating. Okay, examined by beating. Okay, you've got all this. All this background, what does this mean? What does this mean when we come to live our lives in the midst of difficult situations. When we looked a couple weeks ago at finding God's will and understanding it, we had to come to grips with the fact that God's will is, is like this. Here are the big things that he says and he promises to us. And these are the big things of who he is and how we understand the world in relation to him. And now how does he call us to live? He calls us to live in faithful obedience to those things. Now look at the, the first verse of chapter 22. 
Brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. Now, the word defense is a technical term, a technical term. And for anybody who's, who knows anything about people like Ravi Zacharias or um, I can't remember the other one in, in particular. Now um, oh, it come to me about 2 o'clock this morning, uh, uh, tomorrow morning. Um, Josh McDowell, Josh McDowell, okay, there we go. This is the word apologetics, okay, to give a defense of what you believe. I mean, Peter says, always be ready to give what? We better turn there, Peter. First Peter three, fifteen, sixteen. This is what we are called to do as believers. And it doesn't it doesn't say be ready here when times are good. Be ready when the Lord is blessing you to talk about how wonderful the Lord is and how much he cares for you and how good he is to you. Because that's not usually what Paul faces. Paul is called to give a defense when they're trying to kill him. He speaks to the crowd that wants his death and tells them about the things of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you, and you are to do it with gentleness and reverence. Always, when especially when times are tough, especially when it seems to be raining on your parade every single day. I think the Lord brings those things into our life so that we might have our attention focused on who he is. Lord, are you doing this to me? I understand. What did Paul, when Paul was taken to the house of Ananias, Ananias told, was told, you must tell this servant what? How much he must suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, when was Paul going to be able to give a defense when things are good? There wasn't going to be much time for that. He gave a defense of the things of Christ throughout his entire life, and things were almost always difficult, always bad. They were always trying to kill him or run him out of town or stone him or beat him, but yet he continued to proclaim the things of Christ. Now, remember, Paul is a man with only one thing on his mind, and that is Christ, him crucified. Because what he's been actually doing is preaching the gospel to this mob. They want his death. He wants to preach. They want to kill him. He wants to tell them about life. He's been exalting Christ. He's been talking about sin in his defense here. He's been talking about guilt. He's been talking about conversion. He's actually been doing what Jesus had said. When you're taken on trial, don't give any thought to what you say. The Holy Spirit will provide for you. So what did Paul do? He began to open his mouth and talk about Christ, talk about Christ, to give his defense, his apologia. The Holy Spirit will help you, and what we see here is a man whose heart and soul is all in for Christ. It didn't matter what the circumstances were. It didn't change the realities of Christ in his life. He said, but th these are true. I may not feel like they're true. I mean, we talked about understanding a subjective truth in Sunday school versus the objective truth. These are objective truths. 
This is the way Christ is. This is the way the Heavenly Father is. This is the way he works in our lives, and this is what he calls us to do. Now, there was a young boy who was, uh, became a Christian. And right after that, right after he had prayed and received the Lord, he, he kind of opened his eyes and said, okay, what's next? What do I do now? Well, he didn't have to do anything else to receive salvation. The work of Christ had been done in his life. What he had to do was now live that out. Okay? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. I know most of us will, will know this passage, but we better read it again so we understand See, there's two types of testimony. There's the testimony we give with our mouth and the testimony we give with our lives. We are called to declare the things of Christ no matter what our circumstances. We are called to live out the things of Christ no matter what our circumstances. Why? This will tell us here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that anyone should boast. A great passage telling us salvation is from the Lord. It is not our effort. It is given to us by grace through faith. Why? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, prepared beforehand, how long ago did he prepare those good works for us to do? If you read the first chapter, it is before the foundations of the earth. That is when he had chosen us in Christ. That is when he had mapped out these things that we are to do. And he doesn't say, these things that I have prepared for you to do when times are good. The testimony of Christ and of Christ's work in your life will never be sweeter than when it is done when times are the most difficult in your life. When it is raining on your parade to be able to take confidence in the work of Christ in the midst of that rain to declare the things of righteousness, even though it looks like your world is falling down upon you. That is when your testimony of Christ will be the sweetest. So let's pray. Lord, we see from Paul's life just the struggles that he went through again and again. And, and Lord, many of us are sitting here today, and there are struggles that we are going through now that we have been through and maybe Lord they continue and, and there seems to be no end in sight maybe hearts are broken in sorrow maybe there are things Lord that we can't even voice we, we don't even know how to put them into words but we, they weigh upon us it is in the midst of these times that we are reminded to look into your word and the truth that is here. These are the facts of the work of Christ. You never desert us. You never leave us on our own. You always provide for us the strength to make it through. But there is that make it through section. Sometimes you deliver us from bad circumstances in a miraculous way. Many times you simply allow them into our lives so that we might know to a greater degree your grace, so that we might be able to testify to the things of Christ, so that they may be even sweeter to us and to those who hear. Lord, for those who are struggling and those who 
seem to be in the midst of continual rain or continual struggle in their lives. Pray that their hearts might be open to these things, that their eyes would be open to what you're doing and what you call them to do, that you might use these circumstances in their lives to testify in a great fashion to the things of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our hymn is 451, Jesus Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. Let's stand as we sing, 451. Oh uh-huh. 